1: Hi, folks. It's Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway Seven Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Friday, December the sixteenth, two thousand eleven, and this is episode eight hundred and five. And if I seem particularly jazzed up today, it's because today I get to uh, to interview. One of, I would say, you know, like my five top heroes in the world of agriculture, permaculture, natural production, local food production. And of course that is Joel Salad and I have him hanging on the line. We'll be bringing him on in just a minute and, uh, really looking forward to this. And this is also the fourth best-selling author to appear on the Survival Podcast. That's a pretty big thing as well. I even have a little post out on Facebook. Uh, hopefully some of you guys saw it. and uh, So I'm going to try to get not just my questions into Joel, but some, some of your questions as well. Uh, I don't want to take too much of the man's time. He's a very, very busy guy. We'll try to get about an hour long out of him like we usually do. And uh, if you have a question for him, I bet if there's a ton of questions waiting on him, we might be able to talk him into coming back. So uh, keep that in mind as well. If you don't hear a question asked, you would have asked if you were here speaking to Joel Salton the way I am. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, ready-made resources. What more can you ask for from a company than for them to say, hey, this is our name, this is what we do, and then they actually do it. All the resources you need for your preparations, ready to go, ready to order, point-click buy, great pricing, great service sent to your house. Everything from 12-volt products for your solar and wind stuff, uh, extensive selection of solar panels and things like that. Long-term storage food, self-defense stuff, gardening tools, you name it, they got it. Ready-made resources. Get on over there today and check them out. Ready-made resources. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical, all the stuff you need to live the tactical lifestyle. Sawtooth has it, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear and everything else you can think of. Really cool, you want to see something really cool at Sawtooth, get over there and check out their titanium tactical spork. The thing is huge, it's awesome, it'll do so much for you. It weighs almost nothing and it's strong as nails man, check it out. And all the other cool stuff over there. Remember, Sawtooth, veteran-owned, veteran-operated up in the mountains of Idaho with great service, great pricing, great selection. Check them out, folks. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are the best ways to do that. We've been putting out quite a bit of video. we got a lot of really great stuff uh, planned coming forward, and our new video guys working out great. So um, stay in touch with us on YouTube. Make sure you know when you subscribe to a channel on YouTube, you have an option where you can say, email me. Whenever uh, whenever this guy puts out a new thing, I want a little email. And I'll make sure you know as soon as I put up an e- uh, video, a video on YouTube. Uh, the thing you need to know, it seems like every time that YouTube changes something, they undo all of that. So if you were getting emails from your YouTube subscription and you're not getting them now, you might want to check that out. Just click on where it says subscribe and you'll see your options there to uh, ask for email notification if you would like that. Uh, last but not least, we are running a member support brigade sale. I said it ended yesterday. I decided one listener emailed me and said, dude, I'm getting some money into my PayPal account. Can, can, I, can, I, can you extend it to Friday for me? And I said, well, you know, if I'll we'll do it for one, I'll do it for everybody. So sale runs through Friday. I announced that yesterday on the blog. Another big announcement with the MSB. I just had Steve, Aust- uh, Steve from <laughs> Alert USA. I'm not going to try his last name anymore. I just can't get it right. I'm sorry, Steve. Uh, but I had him on on Thursday. Great interview. Great insight into the threats that are going on out there and the things that we need to be aware of. And they have a great service. One sixty nine ninety five a year for all these alerts and inside information directly to your cell phone. Got a deal for everybody at 99 bucks. Of course, then I hit them up for MSB. 75 bucks from the Member Support Brigade, that's there. And I put something else in that post I want to say on the air before I bring Joel on today. I think this is important that I reveal some of these things to you because occasionally I get people going, You're making yourself too commercial. And I just it, it makes me want to gouge my own eyes out with a fork. Uh, the reality is I could get rid of every single advertiser. Advertisers, don't worry, I'm not gonna do it. I could replace twelve advertisers with six affiliate programs. And I would, I would make far more money that way. But then I wouldn't have advertisers that I know and love. I wouldn't have advertisers that are personal endorsements. I wouldn't have advertisers that have been vetted by my moderator council on the forum. And I wouldn't have advertisers who have stuck with us for almost four years now. So I wouldn't have that. So I do that. Things like Alert USA. So I give you a special link to go get a deal. And I put a special link in the MSB so you can get a better deal. And people say, that's so he can get affiliate commission. Nope. Not at all. I was offered when I made the deal for you guys an affiliate uh, link with Alert USA and I said no, I don't even want to talk about that. Take every dime that you can afford to make into a discount and give it to my members. That's how I do business at the Survival Podcast. I don't talk about it a lot, but I feel you guys need to know the advocate you have here, how hard I work to make sure that I pass the best deals on to you. Yes, I sell access to the MSB. Every once in a while I put it on sale and make it an even better deal. But if I were skimming off these links that are in the MSB and off these codes that are in the MSB, that would mean I can't give you the best deals. That is absolutely the gospel truth. And anybody that thinks uh, that I do those programs and bring those people in there uh, it, with some kind of like a double dipping or something like that, you're just nuts. Not that it would even be wrong if I did. I just think the program's much better because I put the listeners and the members first, and that's why I got the deal for you, um, for everybody, and I got an even better deal for the MSB. If I can get a deal for everybody, I'll do it too. Uh, but what I do is I put these deals in the MSB. One more thing I want to talk about with that today. I think this is important. I've got a couple people recently that like, okay, uh, for example, Honeyville Grains gives 10% off every order by MSB members. So then Honeyville decides to run an end-of-the-year sale and do 10% off for everybody. And then the listener's mad because they can't get 20% off. They want to do 10 and 10 together. And they say, what's the point if I can't use my discount with the existing discount? Well, here's the point. Um, you can get the member support, uh, members brigade discount whenever you want to. It's not just once in a while. It's not two weeks uh, out of the year. It's any time you want to. So a lot of times we don't just have money floating around, folks. We, we we go, I'd like to buy that. It's on sale, but I still can't afford to buy it now. But you could save up and buy it three months from now and get the discount. That's That's part of why that's the case. And then sometimes our vendors do allow you to use the discount code plus the sale price, and sometimes they can't because here's fundamental reality. And we'll talk about profit with Joel here in a second. People have to make money in business or they can't stay in business. That doesn't mean they can't be completely honest with their customers. That doesn't mean they can't put their customers first. That doesn't mean they can't do a great job of taking care of their customers. And that doesn't mean that once in a while you don't sacrifice as a business owner to do a better job for your customer. But you do have to pay the bills at the end of the day. And that's a fundamental reality. So a lot of times the reason a vendor will say, I'm putting this on sale, but you can't also use the discount code with it, at that point they would be losing money on the deal. Because a lot of these guys really cut their margins to give you these deals in the first place. Just wanted you to know that. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up. And like I said, now I get to introduce you know one of my true heroes in business and in agriculture, Joel Salon. Joel is an awesome guy. Um, I, I, I have to say this is a guy that's beyond organic in so many ways, even though he uses the, the term organic often. Uh, he has demonstrated that a lot of the things that people talk about in theory can be done in practice. He does things in an incredibly ethical way. He does things in an incredibly natural way, and he's an activist trying to teach other people how to do it rather than, let's say, keep the secret sauce to himself. And I'm like totally stoked to be able to say this. Hey, Joel, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
0: Uh, Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you.
1: Well, um, I'm really excited to have you, you on today. I think most of my listeners probably know quite a bit about you, but if you could maybe give just a, a brief introduction to yourself about, you know, kind of what your philosophy is and what you've been doing lately, uh, that'd be great.
0: Okay, well, we're, uh, I'm, I'm a farmer in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. We, uh, we farm pastured livestock, and so we have uh, beef, pork, chicken, both eggs and meat and turkeys and rabbits. We also have forestry products. And the main thing that's different is that we, uh, we run these on pasture rather than in confinement houses. We, um, we have portable infrastructure. We do large-scale composting. We don't buy, you know, chemical uh, fertilizers. And uh, we direct market everything to about 5,000 families and 50 restaurants and about 10 uh, retail facades.
1: Yeah, and you've also been quite prolific as an author. You've got a, a ton of books I want to chat about a little bit, but... In a lot of, a lot of your work as far as speaking, uh, just what you're doing, uh, as far as how, proving it can be done, uh, and, and your writing, you've, you've really been a big voice for other small farmers, other small producers, uh, in, in things that are challenging, let's say, in today's, uh, environment, uh, both politically and, uh, just gets on the ground as a farmer as a whole. Can you talk about maybe some of the biggest challenges there are right now uh, to folks that are trying to do things kind of in an all natural slash organic slash just better for the environment way.
0: Yeah, well, probably probably the single biggest challenge right now is is simply uh, government regulation and intervention. Uh, you know, this this whole paradigm of local you know local food and um, and, and viewing. Animals and plants as fundamentally biological rather than mechanical. Uh, you know, this is a this, these are huge departures from what has become, um, you know, what has become normal for the last, uh, you know, four or five decades. And um, you know, the fact is that this is extreme abnormality of thought when we look at uh, human civilization at history but uh um, you know human civilization has always had embedded food food systems you know food grown close to home um you know uh, carbon you know carbon cycling um you know nature works on carbon cycling on site rather than carbon being transferred you know from one place to another and so uh you know, one of the biggest issues right now is simply um the ability to uh kind of I would say restart what has been historically normal in a time when the average person from your your neighbor to uh, to government agents don't have a clue what normal is.
1: <laughs> Makes you think of your book, folks that say normal.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> yeah, um I- And here's my really – I guess my point of confusion, I, I know that usually when something comes from a government, not to be excited about it as it is. But when I do look at the marketplace that I see, see more and more people asking for this. And generally speaking, then like business tends to get on board with that and get out of the way because they want to serve the market. So there's this huge growing market for people saying, I want to eat locally, I want to eat healthy, I want to know who produced my food, and yet we still have all these huge roadblocks just being plugged into it. Do you see kind of – is it just the conflict of big ag versus small ag or is it – well-meaning idiots in the government or is there something more malicious at stake? I mean, what, to you, what is causing, you know, raids on, uh, you know, like or, uh, raw milk producers and, and things like that, people that are selling direct to the public, having people come down on new legislation getting in the way? What's the big driver in that?
0: Yeah, well, uh, it, it, it's the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I mean, that that's the driver of it. We, we live in a culture where, um, you know, where, the idea of self-reliance and self-determinism is, is um, what, you know, criminalized or, or demonized, and we live in a culture now where the government says you know, they own the individual. I mean, the Food and Drug Administration has now gone on record in writing saying that a citizen does not have a fundamental right to choose the food that they want to eat. Uh, you know that that's a that's a fundamental departure from Washingtonian and Jeffersonian uh, constitutional thought, where where we had the the freedom for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and or you know pursuit of property, in a in a culture um, where we have the right to pursue that for myself. Uh, you know I'm I'm astounded that we would so quickly say that. That I don't own myself, and I don't even own the three trillion member community of bacteria that's in my inside uh, That I don't have the right to choose what should, what should or should not fuel them. And so, what we have now is an entire, you know, a, a food police network in this country uh, built up, you know, over, you know, from sincere-minded thinking. I mean, I don't, I don't use the word conspiracy. Then you're a nut if you use it. So I use the word. Uh, fraternity of ideas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what we have is this huge food police, uh, infrastructure that now says it's perfectly fine and safe and legal to feed your kids Twinkie, Twinkies, Cocoa Puffs, and <laughs> Yamatoo. But, but raw milk, Aunt Matilda's homegrown, uh, uh pickles, yeah. and, uh, compost-grown tomatoes, now those are hazardous substances.
1: And it's it's crazy, and I don't know if you heard about this. You probably did. You're probably more plugged into this than I am. But the judge that handed down that ruling about not having the right to choose your own food, I think it was in Wisconsin or whatever, he's now working for a lobbying firm that's hired by Monsanto. He basically quit his job like a couple months after that, and now he works for a, a legal firm that does lobbying work for Monsanto.
0: Wow. Now, I didn't realize that he'd quit his uh, judgeship. I, no. I knew about the ruling, and I well, I'm not I'm not surprised. I expect Monsanto uh, when they found a guy that was that uh, that that far um, askew in their corner, they probably offered him way more than he was making as a judge to come and work for them. When I
1: when I saw that, the only thing that I had disbelief about, I'm like, well, you would think they would at least wait like six months or something just to. You know what I mean? Just for appearances or something like that. But it was relatively quick. My wife uh, does a lot of research for me and she had sent me the email like right right after I just got done ranting about it, you know, all of a sudden he's going to work for this. And it's not directly for Monsanto as the report came out, but it's a legal firm. So it's kind of they did a one-off thing, you know, so Monsanto was this firm. And and I, I guess you see a lot of stuff like that out there.
0: Well, no, we we do. That's what I call the fraternity of ideas. I mean, people have to understand that when they say, "I want the government to protect me" or "I want the government to give me a safety net," um, really, you you can't you can't inject the government into our uh, our lives uh, more without giving up freedoms. And this whole um, this whole Balance between risk and freedom. You know, you you can't you can't offer uh, freedom without also allowing people the risk of making stupid choices, stupid decisions. I mean, you know, I, I think I think people make stupid choices all the time. Um, I mean, people smoke, people overdrink, people drive drunk, people uh, eat Twinkies and Cocoa Puffs and four sodas a day and go eat you know DiGiorno's frozen pizza. And I think people make all sorts of very, very risky decisions, and so you know it should give us pause when we um, when we realize the extent to which the government has penetrated into the marketplace to determine what you and I have the choice to do and especially when it comes to food, you know to uh, to eat and so what we have now, for example, is you know farmers like me that have uh, chickens out on on pasture. You know we're now labeled bioterrorists because our chickens commiserate with red-winged blackbirds and indigo buntings and transfer our disease, our alleged diseases, um, to the science-based, environmentally controlled Tyson chicken houses and threaten the planet's food supply. Huh. So you know it, 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 it it's that kind of thinking that is. Uh, Coming in, again, I think totally, uh, in most cases, sincerely, but, um, you know, but but sincerely wrong.
1: Yeah, I would agree. It's sincerely wrong. Um, I've been recently talking a lot about genetically modified foods and the threat they, they pose. And I get a lot of this stuff that's kind of like pushback on it, you know, where you're just holding back progress. And my thoughts have always been, hold on a second, let's let's just say the GMO part itself, let's just say we'll shelve that and we'll argue about whether it's okay to modify the thing in a second. Let's shelve the patenting of a life form for a second. Let's even shelve the fact that they're modifying a soybean, spraying it with Roundup, and then you're eating it, and we'll shelve that. What about this? And this is what I don't hear people talk about. A farmer gets sold on applying an herbicide-ready product uh, to his his field, and for 10 years they grow that, and they saturate that field with Roundup or Atrazine or any of the other herbicides they modify this stuff to do. What happens when that farmer then says, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore, and tries to go a more natural route and plant a different crop there, and it's not been genetically modified to deal with that substance that's now left in his field? But they say, don't worry, it, it's biodegradable. It, to me, it's not biodegradable, and... It almost locks the land up into this model,
0: yeah, well, i would even go i would even go one step further. Um, I find it uh, unconscionable that so many uh, conservatives defend uh, GMOs on the on, exactly like you said on the basis of progress and scientific uh, you know scientific development blah blah blah. but the problem with to me, one of the most fundamental problems with GMOs is that they are ubiquitous. They they you can't keep them at home. And if there's one thing that the property rights defenders need to be defending, it is the right of me to um you know, to decide what happens on my property. And the fact that our courts have now ruled that if Monsanto uh makes some strange life form that uh that comes across my boundaries and impregnates my crop with brand new life forms that I don't want, not only can I not sue Monsanto for property right infringement, I have to pay Monsanto for for a royalty for the privilege of them impregnating my plants with a life form that I don't want. I mean, think about it. If a, if a neighbor had a if a neighbor had a, a, a dog get loose and bred all the all the neighbors' um, uh, female dogs and, turn, and, and with with some form of you know two-headed uh, Franken dog thing, the neighbors would be up in arms and winch that guy for letting his dog get, used to, get loose and run rampant in the neighborhood, impregnating everybody's dogs. But here we have a situation where Monsanto is doing exactly this. And the courts are holding... The people with the new Franken dogs uh, uh, as patent infringements on the life form that Monsanto owns. They,
1: they have to pay a stud fee to the to the neighbor who lets the Franken dog. Yeah, the they have stud
0: fee to the guy that yeah. let, his, let his dog uh, get loose, run rampant in the neighborhood. I mean, it, 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 it's it's um, you know it's it's beyond speakable, and yet and yet we have many in the conservative movement who are the biggest, even the libertarian movement who are the largest defenders of um, of this technology. The I think a lot
1: of them, Joe, I think a lot of them don't know. I don't think they get it. They just think it's a bunch of hippies saying, hey, look, this is dangerous, and they don't actually understand the damage that's being done, because I don't see how especially a libertarian could defend the stance that if you're – it, it, your, your ox scores my cattle. It's my responsibility. It, it, it goes yeah. that far back that it's my responsibility to fence my my dangerous animals in, not your responsibility to face them, fence them out. That's that's as that's as old as written language goes.
0: Well, sure. It, I mean, that goes clear back to uh, you know biblical Levitical law. You know, if if I have an ox. Uh, that that uh, gets out and hurts you, uh, that ox is an extension of my of my uh, persona. And in fact, if that ox was known to have been—I uh, don't know what the, what Leviticus calls it—but uh, dangerous known let's just to say, been a, yeah, to been a, a problem, uh, and it hurt and, and it, it goes over and kills you, then I am put to death for the action of my ox. Now, if it if it's a first time offender, then. Then um, I, I don't I don't get the death penalty, but you know that's how that's how important this extension of property rights is. And you know which brings me to the thought: a lot of people think you know people like me that are, are fairly libertarian minded um, think that what well, aren't we glad that we have all these environmental laws regulations? Well, in my view, we shouldn't have had an EPA to tell us that that it's wrong for you know DuPont to dump mercury in the river and and, uh, that goes downstream and pollutes everybody's water. We shouldn't have had an EPA for that. Uh, um, The the executives, the uh, corporate presidents or whatever, stockholders of DuPont should have been uh, brought to court simply on on, uh, trespass infringement and made to clean it up. We didn't need an EPA for all that.
1: You you know, you bring a good point up there. It's It's not their place to pollute. It's one thing if you pollute your place, but when you let your pollution spill outside of your boundaries... It's it, it's damaged. It, one law takes care of everything in kind of a way. I, I don't want to go totally activist with this interview, though, because people that listen to this show really listen to find out what they can do. Uh, and we can talk about some of the stuff we can do as an activist, but what I mean is people that listen to this show are very big in the self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And a lot of them are small farmers, small producers. Some of them are just homesteaders. And a lot of them, up until now, or up until recently, have been doing things in a, let's call it a conventional, which we both know is an insane way. And But they're saying, how do I transition? So, I mean, as, as a farmer, and uh, I would almost say you're like a farmer and a rancher, because you know, you've got animals in there, and I guess it's all farming, but you you've integrated those two components together. Are there certain things that you've learned that even, let's say, just the homesteader can use as they make that transition? Or the small farmer that says, I'm afraid I'm going to go broke if I do this. And I think they can actually be a lot more profitable. But that, that first toe in the water is a little scary, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, sure it is. Um, yeah, there, there, are basic, there are basic things. Uh, first of all, uh, it, you know, if you're let, – let, let's say you have a backyard. You have a, you have a small farm, you're, you're whatever – um, the first thing is that you want to grow food for yourself, and growing food for yourself uh, takes, you know, means that you have to have fertility of some sort. Fertility is always driven by uh, carbon, and so what you want to do is recycle your carbon on site. So one of the best things that anybody can do, for example, is at least have enough chickens to take care of your own kitchen scraps. They give you your eggs. Now you don't have to buy eggs anymore. And they recycle your kitchen scraps so you don't have to compost them. And you have manure instead. That's one of the easiest things. And, and a couple of chickens, you know, uh, don't take any more room than a couple of parakeets or, or a fish aquarium. And, and uh, up to 11 chickens don't eat any more feed than an average American pet dog. So, you know, when we look at... at <laughs> At the actual food cost and what we get out of it, wouldn't you much rather have, uh, you know, half a dozen eggs a day than, you know, feed a pet dog and have to clean out his manure all the time. Sure. Sure.
1: And brush him and everything and take him to the vet and and all that. Not that we want to get rid of our dog, but it's a comparison, right?
0: Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's what we really, you know, what we really want to do. Um, and so if you really want to be self-reliant, you get rid, you, you appreciate the, the true cost of some of these, um, you know, more esoteric, ancillary things, and you say, well, we're going to focus on self-reliance first. So, so you know, I'm a big fan of, of what I call kitchen chickens because um, it, it solves so many problems. <laughs> it, it solves it solves your kitchen scraps. It, it solves uh, eggs, and it solves a fertility issue. So you, you kill a lot of birds with one stone there. Um and then, of course, uh, you know, uh, vegetable production or produce production, then you want to go to producing as much of your produce as you can, including season extension. And um, there are – so so now we're talking about hoop houses, uh, greenhouses. I was just up in um, Fargo, North Dakota two weeks ago, met a couple that have put together a passive solar greenhouse from Minneapolis, they're raising green spinach, bok choy, um, mescaline mix in a passive solar greenhouse in Minneapolis. From They, they, they have a 12-person CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, 12 boxes a week portion out of this little 30 by 20 uh, facility. And um, this is from October 1 to April 1 in Minneapolis. Uh, I have seen the most amazing things that people are doing with, uh, you know, with, with heat sink technology. Uh, these folks dug a, dug a pit, for example. They took the footprint of their greenhouse, dug a pit, um, filled it with rock, put uh, leaky pipe in it, four-inch leaky pipe, and they pumped the heat from the greenhouse into the stone pit at, during the daytime and then released it out at night. And this creates a heat sink, so they can grow all this stuff in the winter without supplemental heat. Uh, you know, these are simple things that we know. So, you know, from a from a self-reliant standpoint, you you want to you want to produce your own food, and then you want to extend your season for as long as possible using these cool cloches and, and you know technologies like like Elliot Coleman documents in his Four Season Harvest book. And then and then beyond that, if you um, if you want to move into things like you know beehives to get your own sweetener, um, you know beehives can put on, be put on a on an upstairs patio or a, or a shelf that you hang off the edge of the house. Um, you know I've know seen that. them done on
1: roofs too because it gets them up out of that you know up out of the flight path of flying through people. You know
0: a- absolutely, yeah, especially for children and things like that. And then you know if, if you have a if you have a, I mean you're going to live in a house um, every house. Should have a southern uh solarium on it uh, that solarium can be as simple as just taking a couple of cattle panels and bending it in an arc, putting it uh plastic over it, putting some uh fifty five gallon drums painted black with water in there as a tromby wall as a heat sink and uh and boom you know now now you're not only heating your house with solar but you're also growing your uh you know seasonal extension you know uh greens through the winter time and um and so you know, these are all things that can be done on a on a domestic scale that are very simple. They're very low cost, and one action has a lot of, uh, of effects from it. Which is one of the reasons, one of the things we want to do is always is always have multiple benefits from a single action.
1: Very permaculture esque uh, principle there. Each each item has functions and interactions, inputs uh, and uh, requirements, and those all should be thought of when you put things together, so you can figure out where to place them in a design so they interact exactly. with each other.
0: Exactly. And one of the beauties of of portable infrastructure for animals, whether it's you know whether it's rabbits or chickens or sheep or whatever uh, pigs. One of the beauties of portable infrastructure is. That it is dynamic, and you, you're not locking yourself in into this is the way you know, I'm going to pour this concrete pad, and this is the where this is the where this place is going to be, you know, now for the foreseeable future. Instead, with uh, portable portable shelters, you can uh, you can move these things around, change the placement as you as you live and learn, you know, how to do things better and more efficiently
1: yeah I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about what I think it's your son is actually really kind of heading this thing up with the rabbits and uh doing that almost like you guys do like hog tractoring and chicken tractoring well is, is he basically doing because I didn't get to look at it really deeply yet like is it almost looks like rabbit tractoring
0: yes that is that's exactly what it is. we call them hairpins you know get to the field into the field you make a hairpin turn okay now, hairpin. <laughs> what 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 this is of course, you know the difference between rabbits and chickens is uh, well, there are two two primary difference. One is rabbits will eat up to seventy five percent of their diet off of the you know off of your lawn. So now you're suddenly you you shut the lawn mower off and you don't have to you, you don't have to keep that running and you can mow your lawn with the rabbits and the chickens. And um, so you you take what would normally be a liability, you know, your lawn that has to be mowed and taken care of, and you turn it into a profit. Enterprise. So rabbits are much more herbivorous than uh, than chickens. The second big difference, though, which is negative, is that if the rabbits get out, they're very hard to catch. You know, chicken you can kind of you know run down the corner. They're not the brightest.
1: You, you uh, can ball. shake a can of feed and they come to you.
0: Well, um, yeah. So so so, <laughs> well, so the rabbits. The way we house those outside in these uh, hairpins is a slatted floor. Uh, we just take little lads, uh half an inch by one inch and um and tack it to the bottom of a set of ribs. and the pen is uh, maybe three feet wide and six feet long. It's not very big, but it's plenty big enough for you know for a dozen uh, bunnies in there. and uh the flats, these half inch by by um you know by one inch thick uh, lads, they are put on three inch centers. So that seventy percent of the bottom of the pen is open to the ground, so that you know it's like it's like two two inches by uh, by twelve inches is the you know is, is each square, and the rabbits can eat the rat eat the uh, grass through those squares, and yet they can't uh, they can't dig out. Yeah, you know, these are very light; they only weigh about twenty pounds. Of, you know, a, a five year old child could move them. Um, Extremely light, and uh, and suddenly you take you take your lawn, and um, you know one acre of grass put through rabbits is worth forty five thousand dollars. Wow! So, um, <laughs> you know, suddenly you have a, you have a full time income from one acre of grass.
1: No, that, that's pri- primarily for your bunnies you're raising out for meat. So like your breeders, because you have issues with those castrating bucks if they're not kept separated or one's brought to the other the wrong way. So what are you doing with your breeder rabbits? Are they just kind of in smaller versions or, or what?
0: Uh, the breeder rabbits are in, are in uh, hanging cages, uh, more similar to a regular uh, house. Yeah, one of the problems with having the breeding stock outside is that, um, that does, the female rabbits, when they get stressed, they'll often eat their bunnies. It's a it's a kind of defensive mechanism, uh, inherent in, in them. And um, what happens is when you have them out in these pens at night, these does with a little set of bunnies, you know, there's, there's foxes, there's dogs, there's uh, possums, all sorts of uh, disturbance, I mean kids, whatever, comes along. And uh, so it's important for them to kind of be quiet. So we actually hang them in a separate uh, shed structure with chickens underneath with deep bedding. And, uh, deep vetting being, you know, chips, sawdust, uh, uh, wood chips, any kind of carbonaceous material. And the, uh, and the chickens then scratch through what the rabbits drop and, and the urine that the rabbits put down and the, the chickens stirring the, what I call a, uh, you know, a, a carbonaceous diaper there. The chickens stirring it keeps it composting and aerating so it grows little worms and roly-polies and, uh, actually adds protein for the, for the chickens. And it eliminates the uh, ammonia vaporization that would go up and affect the rabbits. So, uh, again, you're, you're taking a structure and you're using the vertical space, which is another permaculture concept, using vertical space instead of just linear space. So you're using the cubic the cubic footage of the interior space rather than just linear floor space. Suddenly... You take this, this footprint of a, of a structure, whether it's 10 by 12 or 12 by 12 or 20 by 12 or 100 by 20 or whatever it is, um, you take this, this square footage and you greatly increase its productive capacity by tiering, by tearing these complementary species in the same space. Yeah,
1: you're stacking in space there. You're also stacking in time because you're getting a time function out of the breakdown of the organic matter and you're also using time to gain an additional yield of protein.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And and the beauty of this too is that when you're you know when you're stacking like this, you don't have to justify the cost of the building with just one enterprise. Now you're running several enterprises through there from you know compost generation to you know to uh, poultry to the rabbits You're running multiple enterprises through there, and then you can use the walls of the structure you know to grow uh, cucumber vines on you know as lattice. Sure, uh, and, and a solarium on the south side. You know, so suddenly you start hanging these things around a structure, and suddenly that structure becomes extremely uh, far more valuable than it would if you were just running one enterprise through. And that means that you can reduce, you can reduce the density of each enterprise down to a, to, a, um, to a density that is not as attractive to pathogenicity. And that's where you have a huge, um, you know, a huge positive because you're able to keep the numbers down in a more, uh, in a more normal amount.
1: Yeah, and I, it's, it's funny because as soon as you start to do that, like other opportunities just kind of present themselves. When you were talking about planting cucumbers or beans growing up, the structure, I'm thinking, and then that's going to provide shade for the rabbits in the hottest part of the year uh, and help with thermal regulation. And it just all starts to cascade on itself. But, you know, we're talking about animals here, right? So, like, a lot of people have problems with, like, the fact that if you're going to raise these animals, at least some of them you're raising for eventual slaughter. And I think that the way you do things and the way you're teaching people to do things leads to a lot more ethical treatment and and ethical slaughter. I read an article, I don't remember what magazine it was, but it was about you, and there was a quote from you, and I'll, I'll never get it exactly right, but it really, like, it was the thing that really tied me into you for good. And it was you were talking about on days when it's days the slaughter, and you basically said don't do it every day because if you do, you'll lose sensitivity from it. You'll have zero regret when you do it, and there should be some feeling whenever you take an animal's life. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because that that nailed me.
0: Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. Um, look, every, we gotta first of all, we gotta establish that everything is eating and being eaten. And so there's certainly there's certainly nothing uh, anti-ecological or spiritual or whatever about eating you know about eating animals because the fact is everything's eating and being eaten and if you don't believe it you know go lie naked in your flower bed for three days and see what gets eaten so so we got to get over this thing the, pred- the, the predator-prey relationship is is you know is is just fundamental. Um, to ecology, the the fact that something has to die in order to uh, decompose and give life to something else that regenerates is a, is a cornerstone of, of ecology. And and yet, yet um, as as humans, we can we need to continue to be aware of the. The sacrifice we need to we need to be aware of the uh, of the uh, of just the reality of sacrifice and and it is it is a, a big thing uh, and so I think that it's not healthy for a person to just kill animals every single day um, it's just not emotionally healthy even you know and I go back to precedent and again we go back to Leviticus you know the priest actually drew straws. To do one month sacrificial duties in the in the temple, uh, and ro- you know, so they rotated out. You know, I'll wash the I'll wash the I'll wash the, uh, I'll wash the knives this month. Uh, you do the sacrifices this month, and then they drew straws. You know, and they rotated around uh, because it, it it simply is not a healthy thing to be uh, killing animals all the time. And that's one of my you know one of my problems with you know big slaughterhouses and big industrial slaughter plants. Is that uh, there isn't a rotation through? Uh, we own a small federal inspected slaughterhouse up in Harrisonburg, and uh, we only kill, I think, three days a week. And so the guys who work the kill floors three days a week are actually doing other things the other couple of days a week. And, and I think that that is a, uh, a much more uh, you know healthy way to approach it.
1: Yeah, it, it speaks to me. I grew up. Uh, we gardened, we, we were kind of like homesteaders before anybody called it that, or we were preppers before anybody called it that, and, uh, you know, we had our, you know, our, about our acre and a half little, little homestead with our garden, it was probably made up a half of an acre, and I was a big hunter as well, that was a big part of how protein came into the household, I'm from Pennsylvania, you're from Virginia, so you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. No, I mean they still where I'm from, they still close school on the first day of deer season. It's it's how it works. Yeah. And and when I started archery hunting as as a teenager, and you know, and I you know, I got my first just beautiful deer, and I had some regret with it. And what my uncle told me is, you've earned it. And and what he meant was because you have the regret, you've earned the right to take the animal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And 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 I would say that the the uh, the sacredness of sacrifice is elevated by honoring and respecting the animal in life and and so you know uh some of the native american traditions have this you know where you where you um, honor the animal in death you know thank you for giving your life for me they have these you know little prayers and chants and things and, and i think that's a that's a very healthy thing to to appreciate that without 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 death there could be no life and to have life requires death that creates a sacredness and a preciousness to life that doesn't exist when, when you just view animals as inanimate piles of protoplasmic structure to be manipulated however cleverly Ubers can imagine to manipulate them. And, and uh, that doesn't give anybody the right to take the life of anything when you have disrespected it through life. That, that simply desecrates what should be a very sacred thing.
1: Yeah, the real circle of life versus the Disney version where uh, uh, warthogs and lions hang out together.
0: <laughs> yeah, either extreme, set, you hit the nail on the head. Either extreme, uh, whether you know the extreme of, of Bambi itism or the extreme of you know Tysonism, either extreme is a problem.
1: Yeah, you know, I wanted to tell you this because I thought you'd kind of like like to hear this. Honestly, there's a, a local farmers market here that, that my wife and I go to. And we've tried to talk to everybody down there, get to know our local producers. And we found one farm that we buy quite a bit from. We buy pastured uh, poultry from. We're going to be reserving a hog with them. And when I was talking to them, the the farm's called JB Farms. And apparently they're like probably without you knowing it, huge students of yours. And their Uh primary meat production, they do some rabbits too, but they're doing hogs and chickens like one behind the other. And right. he's like he was talking about how much feed they give them because they can get X percentage off the land. And I was just wondering, you know, with that, could you kind of give an, you know, kind of explain that system how you do that? Because uh, I think it's pretty fascinating.
0: Well, sure. Well, the fact is that every every animal uh, will eat a certain amount of pasture and is a, is a certain amount of um, what has has enough, have some scavenging. Every animal has some scavenging potential, and so. Um, you know, so poultry birds will eat up to like 15 to 20 percent of their diet off the off the land. And in fact, if you don't crowd them, you know, for example, laying hens, uh, if you don't crowd them at all, if you just have a couple in a in a very non dense situation, uh, they can almost live off the land in the summertime with grasshoppers and crickets and worms and grubs and and you know little seeds and things that they find. So. So you know the omnivores, the omnivores, the poultry, and the hogs are extremely um, resourceful that way. The uh, the pigs, we actually run the pigs in sections of forest under oak trees, and uh, they pick up a tremendous amount of acorns. Uh, one acre of one acre of um, oak forest put through pigs will save uh, at minimum three hundred and at maximum six hundred dollars. Worth of feed cost. That's a huge amount of feed cost from just an acre of wood. And so this brings up the potential, uh, for your homesteader that you mentioned, your self-reliant homesteader of what we call farming the edges. You know, you don't have to have all big fields and pristine areas. There are so many little corners and edges, uh, that we can, that we can tuck, tuck a few animals in with portable electric fencing and portable sheltering systems, uh, in order to scavenge out of some of these unproductive or heretofore unused areas.
1: Yeah, you've got. So, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Well, so, so so there is there is a definite you know leader follower uh, potential here, and and um, whether it's you know pigs going through scavenging, um, you know chickens harvesting grass. Chickens we we follow cows uh, with the chickens. The chickens scratch through the cow patties and eat out the fly larvae. And uh, sanitize the paddock before the cows come in. Uh, we use the we use hogs to uh, to turn our compost. We call them pigerators. Uh put some corn in, and the pigs then seek the corn and the pigs then fluff up and aerate the compost. and that that it keeps us from having to do it you know by hand, which cuts down labor costs, cuts down machinery costs, petroleum costs. Um, you know these are these are basic principles uh, that I've described, of course, in all my books, but but they're they're fundamental to, um, to making an extremely efficient, um, efficient, you know, agrarian model.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking feeding hogs acorns is well regarded in Spain and people pay like $75 a pound for certain ham that's, that's made off of acorn finished certain hogs over there. And I've got this
0: black-footed hogs in the Iberian Peninsula, you know, they, they'll charge, um, well, I've seen it at $1,000 a ham for those, you know, five-year uh, uh, cured hams. And, and so, yes, um, omnivores like that, especially hogs uh, running in woods, has been, you know, a historically normal uh, model for way, way longer than Smithfield has tried to confine them on slatted floors over lagoons and houses.
1: absolutely, and this is where they're from. I mean, that's where a a wild hog lives, and uh, anybody that's hunted them in anything from, like, let's say Arkansas East knows that if you find thickets of acorns in the fall and there are hogs in the area, that is prime hunting territory.
0: You better believe it.
1: So that's what they like, that's where they live, and then we try to feed them corn in a cage and wonder why we have diseases and problems and unhappy hogs.
0: Right. Actually, uh, yeah. Actually, hogs that are that are fattened on acorns, their oil when you when you cook them, the, the oil that comes out of the fat is actually known to kind of as olive oil. It's it's uh, it's a very very similar consistency to olive oil because of the different kinds of uh, fats that are in the acorns as opposed to corn.
1: I've got a little debate with some folks out there. And I wonder if you could solve real quick for me. Uh, I've had people say you got to keep your chickens away from acorns because they'll get too much tannin and they'll die. And I just find that to be completely wrong. I'm sorry, and I'd like your thoughts on it.
0: <laughs> oh my! Well, we certainly we've run chickens for decades here, and they go in the woods, and uh, we've certainly never had one die from acorns. <laughs> I, I don't know if they. Eat, I don't know if a chicken can actually eat an acorn. That's a pretty big deal. That sounds like a pretty big swallow to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do know in the Great Depression that some farmers would crack acorns for their chickens because they couldn't afford, you know, enough feed, and they would supplement it with that. And my thing is that animals know better than eat something that's going to kill them. Uh, chickens can do some dumb stuff. They really can. But usually they do. They eat things that are going to kill them when it's not, like, a natural thing. You know, it's
0: like they'll eat yeah.
1: a... Uh, a wing nutter. I've seen that, you know, uh, a chicken eat a wingnut, that didn't work out real well for the chicken, uh, I've seen some stuff like that, I, I also, um, I was listening to the interview that you gave Jason Akers up in Pennsylvania at the uh, Mother Earth News Fair, and like the one thing that really like got me, because we talk about sprouting here a lot, but for people, you have been kind of experimenting with sprouting for chickens, yeah, Do you want to tell folks, oh,
0: that, I mean- yeah, well, uh, I mean, we're, we're experimenting. With it. I'm certainly so, I'm not an expert yet, but that, that that is on my on my list of um, hot things that I want to I want to do a lot more with. The basic idea of sprouting is that it takes a given amount of grain, you know, take a bushel of grain, and it it increases its nutrient value uh, depending on who you read after by a factor of anywhere of you know two two times to seven times. And the the problem with sprouting is that there's so much uh, handling the, the way it's typically done? There's so much handling involved, you know, to, to move this this uh, now you know watery, heavy, uh, perishable material. That, that, you know, the second thing, of course, is that it's now perishable instead of being uh, relatively stable like like dried grains are. So you know, there are there there are problems with it. But if you can figure out how to handle how to do it efficiently and not have to and and uh feed it right out as it's sprouted um then you know to be able to take a a bushel of barley or a bushel of oats or rye or something and you know triple its nutrient value uh as feed value you know that that's not something to be taken lightly that that would be uh that'd be pretty cool
1: and and you had this idea for this like yeah, uh, what do you call it? Like a of wind, like windmill, a uh, Ferris wheel.
0: Yeah, I, I call it a Ferris wheel, a Ferris wheel sprouter. The idea is that you know how a Ferris wheel is. Well, uh, this would be something maybe five feet in diameter, and um, and you would hang about eight seats. The seats would be trays, say 18 inches by you know five feet maybe, and uh, it would hold a you know five gallon bucket full of um, of soaked grain and um, and every day you advance this Ferris wheel one you know one step so that in 8 days the uh, at the 8th day the the tray is back down at the bottom of the uh Ferris wheel and it's just high it, it's just perfect height off the ground for chickens to uh reach in there and self harvest that way uh you just handle them one time from the soak bucket into the tray and the chickens then uh um, you know, self-feed out, and of course, to keep the chickens off of the other trays, you'd have to put you know the ones before they before they were ready uh, from jumping up there. You'd have to put a some sort of a cloak. So my idea was to to put a slatted a, a, a slatted cloche, you know, just a cloche, a, a a hoop over those trays that the chickens could roost on, so that in the winter when we have the chickens in the uh, in the greenhouses the hoop houses. They, they get warm in the day, but they get cold at night. This way, the chickens would jump up there and roost at night and be a, a chicken blanket on the, on the sprouts to keep them uh, warm at night. So you could keep sprouting, you know, through the dead, you know, through the coldest part of winter. Yeah. Uh, these these are just ideas. This is how I think. Uh, that's awesome. I have no idea if it'll work or if we'll encounter something that we didn't anticipate. But uh, that's definitely on my, you know, on my to-do list.
1: Well, cool. Hey, man, I've got some questions coming in on Facebook for you. Maybe I can throw a few of those at you, kind of like a lightning round here towards the end. Sure. <laughs> we'll see how much we like, because I know there's some deep stuff, too, though. We'll see how we like, can lightning it, though. Uh, ben says, other than, quote, voting with your feet, end quote, what are some other steps people can do to fight city ordinances restricting farming?
0: Well, I'm a big believer in uh, civil disobedience. And I think that uh, it's a lot easier to ask forgiveness than permission. And so I think that uh, if thousands of us just went out and did what we knew was right, uh, we, would, we would have a lot more freedom than we would by, you know, trying to, um, trying to toe the line to everybody.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that, I, 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 like we had the one lady they tried to put in jail, it was in Michigan, and I put it out on my show and just basically said, here's the number to everybody at that city government, call them. And uh, they eventually backed off. And it wasn't just me. It was hundreds of people doing stuff like that with blogs and all. And I don't think that that's gone unnoticed. And I think this, like, Nazi-esque enforcement of this stuff, that that cities and towns are going to – the more we fight and the more we do it anyway and the the more we are heard, the less likely they are going to be to to do that type of thing to us. Um, Next one for you. David Galloway says, in the years since you wrote You Can Farm – do you still think the best way to get started in agriculture is to rent 20 acres and raise broiler hens and eggs?
0: I. That's a great question. I. I haven't seen anything that's as, uh, that's as quick a turnaround. I mean, uh, America's eating chicken. It's it's a very low cost thing. It's an eight week turnaround time from start to finish. Uh, you know that's, that's as fast as a radish, and. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a cheap way in. Uh, again, you know, it's not a great big piece like, like beef and stuff. And uh, I still have not seen, in my opinion, uh, a, you know, a, a slicker, more efficient way to jump in than with the pasture broiler.
1: Awesome, awesome. So that, that stood the test of time. You got a real fan there, too, that even knew that it was all the way back to one of your first books. Uh, same guy says, do you favor local grasses and weeds to make your salad bar pasture, or do you also mix in non-local varieties?
0: Essentially, our pastures are all whatever's been growing. We've never planted a seed in 50 years, and we have watched the complexion of, of the pasture change dramatically in those 50 years. Uh, I think generally that nature knows best on this, and whatever's more most climatized uh, and is most nativized to your region, I think will, will gravitate to your, to your, you know, to your situation. And um, you know, if you think about it, generally whatever, whatever's in the side ditches of the road is the most resilient species of forage that that, that is the most prolific with the least amount of input uh, in your area. And so, um, you know, I, I say stay with, stay with uh, what's there and, and what comes naturally.
1: Awesome. Uh, Lydia says, if you're in an arid situation, what are the best poultry to raise and any recommendations for good dairy goats?
0: Oh, uh, what I don't know about dairy goats would fill a library, so I'm not even going to touch the dairy goats. I just don't know much about them. Um, I just know you got to have a really good <laughs> fence to keep them in, and uh, I tend to not raise things that are smarter than I am, so I tend to stay with dairy is. Um Arid situations, poultry and arid situations. Um, I don't know if she's asking, well, I mean, she says arid. I don't know if this is arid hot or arid cold. Um, but you know, generally, arid hot, you would take your take your, for example, raising broilers. You would take your time off in the middle of the summer, and raise them through the winter. If you're arid cold, you'd take your time off in the winter and raise them through the summer. Um, I, I don't see that there's a big difference. I do. I will tell you this that uh, we've had extremely good success in the last two years, uh, bringing in the French La Belle Rouge. Um, broiler which is a red colored chicken it's the french um, it's the french broiler bird the double breasted grows about 20 percent slower than the cornish cross american broiler Um, so it doesn't have quite as plump a breast doesn't grow quite as fast is not quite as feed efficient however it does graze a lot better and it definitely is hardier and it has a much more brilliant fat so we have found a wonderful market acceptance and that might be something you might look at in a more harsh environment.
1: Excellent, excellent. Um next one, just kind of a comment for you. I think it'll make you chuckle a little bit. Wayne Wayland Cook says Joel Salatin for president. Those bumper stickers are the best.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I can't um I can't complain about the job, but I don't think the pay is enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um Karen Pennington says, "What is most important, locally raised foods or organic?"
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I'm not certified organic. I don't participate in any government programs, and I think that that um, since the government now owns the word organic, there's been a tremendous amount of adulteration in the um, you know in the word. All you have to do is uh, check out Cornucopia. Dot com. That's an, uh, a group of attorneys in Wisconsin that um, it seems like every Monday morning they're having to sue the USDA again to enforce their own their own organic standards. Uh, I guess my position on that is I can't imagine why why uh, people think that that uh, the government, which has poo pooed organics from day one, um, could possibly be a good administrator of the organic uh, of the word organic. So the beauty of local is that you can actually uh, go check it out, see it, and uh, the beginning of integrity is transparency. You can't have accountability and integrity without transparency. So at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the being able to see it and uh, touch it and smell it and participate with it is far more um, transparent than any kind of label organic or
1: otherwise. Yeah, I've actually been working on something. I wasn't going to bring it up on the air because I want to take your air time up with it, but I'd like you to know about it uh, now that you mention that. Uh, I've, I've started putting together a program called AgriTrue, and the tagline means truth in agriculture. And my belief is that if you want honesty about your food, ask the farmer that grew it, and he'll tell you. And he'll tell you whether he's using GMO Tyson garbage or doing beyond organic. And he'll tell you whatever you want to know, and we can take a farmer at his word, and my hope is to set some standards, uh, but mainly so that the buyer can, with one quick uh, swipe of a smartphone, know exactly where their stuff was grown, see pictures of the farm, see the farmer, ask the farmer a question, uh, and we're working on that. We kind of got a big setback. I hired a coder to start building the site, and, uh, he kind of just stopped building the site and disappeared. Um so we've got, so we've got a mess there, but I'd actually like you to know, know more about man that.
0: Man, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> But, but that's just my belief is that if people would get in touch with their producers, and, and that's a very, very local production-centric uh, thing because it's ideally made for the small producer, the guy with you know 100 acres or less, um, the guy that is selling from, from, from farms and things like that. And I go to the, the uh, farmer's markets, and I see the people that have pictures of their farm like on a board and all, and I'm like, if we could just harness technology to, to let people connect that way. And, and, you, you know, and I, I heard your uh, interview, I don't remember who you gave it to, but you're in your truck driving. And you were talking about going to the local farmer's market. It would be better if you had one place to pay for everything. Right. And, and I was thinking, man, that's a, that kind of lets that whole thing work even on a bigger level because you could go into like a co-op of all local producers, and they don't have to be there. They can be off-running their farm, and you still know who you're buying from. Just, yeah. just by the yeah. bin that it said. So. Yeah, The, 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 fluid,
0: the certainly the, the, fluidity, the fluidity of preserving integrity in the local food distribution network is is um, is huge right now. I mean, everybody's got an idea, and all these ideas, your idea, these are you know, these are all good. Um, ultimately, it, it, it ultimately you cannot have an honest food system without heavy participation. Just like you can't have good politics without a lot of participation. You know, you can't abdicate your civic responsibility. And, and, and assume that, well, you know, those people, them, they, those over there, somebody is going to vote for the right person. Uh, at the end of the day, we get exactly what we deserve, and we get the kind of food we deserve, we get the kind of politics we deserve, we get the kind of policy we deserve. And so ultimately it's about participatory uh, you know, participatory involvement in, in the system, whether it's food, um, you know, a policy, or, or whatever. And so um, you're right, it, it's all about participation.
1: Um yeah absolutely. I completely agree with that uh here's uh david uh asking uh ask him what he thinks of paleo nutrition. I know one of his drivers lost two hundred pounds uh, after working for him and eating clean food from his farm. i don 't know if you know this or not, but you are like a hero in the paleo world like uh, I, I I'm big on paleo nutrition. Rob Wolf was on the show last week he's featured you on his side a bunch um But because you're showing how to make meat sustainable, uh, you're really a big you know you have a lot of you have a huge fan base in that world because what we're always told is you have to eat soybeans and wheat that's sustainable. What are your thoughts on uh, paleo nutrition and sustainability of meat in general?
0: Oh well, uh, it's a great question. Absolutely, I'm a friend of the paleo you know the paleo world, Um, and the basic concept on animals is. Uh, And and if you you get my book, Folks, This Ain't Normal, you'll see this very clearly articulated. The the problem with um, omnivores is that we have put them in a cage, like you said, put them in a cage and given them grain, um, which is a totally uh, abnormal, unnatural world for omnivores. Uh, The the foundation of all cultures throughout history – has been the herbivore because the herbivore was the only nutrient dense product. And when I say herbivore now, that's not just cows. That's buffalo, camels, zebras, yaks, um, reindeer, you know uh, squirrels, rats, guinea squirrel, pigs. And and the point is that, that the reason that the herbivore was the foundation of all the societies that actually survived was because that was nutrient density from a perennial that did not require planting or tillage, and in a day before cheap energy and, and mechanical power mach- uh, and machinery, uh, when tillage was extremely laborious, it was extremely difficult to do, and so um, and so the cultures. In fact, you know, I don't know if you've read the read the Jared Diamond's book Collapse. But uh, when you read Collapse, one of the most amazing things that he does not address in that whatever it is 800 page book is the the, the dot that he doesn't connect is that all of the cultures that collapsed, all of them, um, d- d- none of them had herbivores. They they, they were they were non-herbivorous um, cultures, and so it's important to understand the role of the herbivore, and now, for the first time in human civilization, we're able to duplicate the large, marauding, stampeding groups of herbivores and, and, and predators uh, that were, you know, the way they were done uh, throughout history. We can duplicate that, that now with very high-tech electric fencing and portable infrastructure. We've never been able to do that before. Now we can do it so we can tap into this wonderful, carbon sequestering, soil-building, hydrology-stimulating um, natural system of herbivore, perennial, temporary disturbance, and long-term rest periods between applications. Uh, the herbivore is absolutely the key to uh, ecological enhancement and nutrient density.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I'm not going to try to even add anything to that. That's just great. Uh, real quick one here. Uh, do, do you have any suggestion for a better tonic for the health of his chickens respiratory system other than cider vinegar and garlic that he gives them once a month in their water?
0: Well, the only thing I would add about health for chickens is um, is there's a wonderful uh, you know, organic premix made by Furtrell. And uh, whenever anybody asks about you know, poultry trouble, my first question is, are you using, you know, are you using Furtrel, uh, premixes, which is a, is a Bainbridge, Pennsylvania company, um, Omri certified, and, uh, as if certification means anything. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's primarily seaweed, uh, food grade soft rock phosphates and vitamins and minerals, and, um, it goes in at 60 pounds per ton, and to me, that's my first That's my first line of defense on, on just, you know, vigorous, vigorous poultry, other than just good, you know, good sanitation practices.
1: Awesome. One more for you, and it's an easy one. Is he still raising his turkeys with his grapes, or has he created a new process?
0: Raising turkeys with, what was the word? Grapes. Grape?
1: Yeah. Did you raise turkeys? Oh. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, yeah, great question. Uh, yes, in fact, we do. And, um, I mean, we, we raise turkeys other places as well, not just the, the vineyard, but absolutely under the vineyard. I will tell you one fascinating thing that, uh, that we just started two years ago was um, under, the, under the grapes and under the orchard trees, we have, um, you know, uh, a mulch of wood chips. And, of course, the turkeys and chickens when they come through there, they'll, they'll you know, scratch that out and make a mess. You know, we have' uh, we have it contained with a you know with like an eight by eight uh, box like four feet by four feet of uh, box with the chips in there and so two years ago one of our interns came back to be a horticulturalist here and um he he inoculated those uh, chip beds with wine catatropharium um um, mo- um what am I saying a mushroom spawn and uh and these my these uh mycelium spread down through those um, wood chips and glue them all together with those white, you know, white uh, fussy strands of mycelium so the poultry can't um, can't scratch the mulch covers out from under the orchard trees and the vineyard and, uh, it makes, it makes a much easier way to keep them. And, you know, during the two months of bloom every year, you've got these wonderful big, you know, six inch diameter, six inch diameter, um, you know, $10 wine caps Tropharia mushrooms to sell or to eat. So it's a, it's another win-win situation.
1: Very awesome. And just another example of how things get integrated together. Well, we've kind of wrap things up, Joel. I, I want to make sure people know how they can find more about you, get your books and all. Uh, your website is polyfacefarms.com. I'll have a link to that in today's show notes. I'm going to read off the books I have listed for you here. You tell me if I missed any. Pastured pro- Poultry pr- uh, profits, Salabar Beef, You Can Farm, Family Friendly Farming, Holy Cows, and Hog Heaven. Everything I Want to Do is Illegal, and that one I think people really need to read. The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer, and folks, This Ain't Normal. I've got those all listed in the show notes for people so they can find them real easy. Did I miss, did I miss any?
0: No, you didn't miss a one. You got every single one of them. There's
1: eight of them. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, and and it, folks, I mean, Joel's done a lot of great work. And one way you can really support a person and let them know that their work is valuable is to step up and you know do, do business with them. And you may not be able to drive down the road and pick up a couple chickens from Joel, but you could pick up his books. Uh, do you have one like if people like just were gonna like just say that this is the first time they heard of you and they wanted to get one book of yours to to get to know you and what you're all about? Would there be one you'd say is the best first book for someone to buy?
0: Sure, uh, folks. This ain't folks. Uh, this ain't normal. Would be the one that I would recommend. That's, that's the most la- that's the latest one, and it's the most uh, kind of you know uh, big picture cultural picture stuff with a lot of little uh, you know personal how to stuff that even you know non landed folks, even urban folks can uh, enjoy.
1: Well, great, man. Hey, uh, I-, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time to be on my show with me today. Um, the show is listened to by about twenty five thousand people. And we're here at the end of the show, and I want to make sure that anything you want to tell those folks, I give you the opportunity to do so. So if you have any final thoughts, please take all the time you need and just say whatever you'd like to say.
0: Uh, well, I'll just share this, uh, because it's just been one of those little, you know, epiphany pieces of advice that, pieces of advice, pieces of advices, pieces of advice that has served me so well, and that is, you know, we've all grown up with, uh, with this, um with this mental picture of Grandma standing over us saying, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. You know, we've heard that so many, If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And um, I got news for you. Grandma was wrong. The truth is that if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly first. Nobody does it right the first time. And so what happens is... That, that we, we have this image, you know, of if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And, and what it does is it stigmatizes us from innovating in our own lives. And we're scared to death of, you know, what if, what if my, what if the cake fails? What if, what if the canner blows up? What, you know, what if, what if, uh, bugs attack the beans? You know, what if the chicken gets sick? And we've got all these, you know, oh, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right, you know. And, and we're scared to death to attempt new things. Because we've got this, you know, this this thing about uh, having to do it right the first time, and so my encouragement is, uh, anything that's worth doing is worth doing poorly first. Nobody does it right the first time. We don't write well the first time. We don't ride a, a bicycle well the first time. We don't walk well the first time. You know, we don't even poop well the first time. We have got to learn how to do that. <laughs> and so, um, and so, so just you know, just run out there. And, and, and be innovative, do something, um, you know, move out of your comfort zone and, uh, and do it poorly first and enjoy doing it poorly because it's in doing it poorly that you eventually do become skillful enough to do it right.
1: Man, that's great advice, and I think you could take that not just farming and not just homesteading, but that's the same advice I used to give my sales teams back when I had, you know, they called a regular day job. Um, so that's just awesome. Also, folks, I want to let you guys know again, PolyfaceFarms.com, Joel's website will be linked in today's show notes, and uh, if you want to meet Joel and me. You can meet both of us. Uh, we will both be speakers in Nashville, New Hampshire, February 23rd through 26, 2012 at the uh, Free State Projects Liberty Forum. So, Joel, I'm looking forward to shaking your hand and meeting you in person. Uh,
0: well, I'm looking forward to meeting you, too, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk to so many wonderful people.
1: Alright, folks, and with that, today, this has been Jack Spirigo, along with Joel Salton, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.